Tonight we're continuing in our Make Our, Make our Mark series to make your mark. Uh, last week we looked at how we can or how we should be making an impact on our family. And this week we're looking at uh, making an impact on our friends, our acquaintances. Uh, and like I said last week, you can either be a good influence or a bad influence on people. Uh, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about all the different friends I have had throughout the years. Uh, especially when I was a teenager, and if you'd ask my parents, some of them weren't very good influences on me. Some of them were better influences, but at the same time, I can think about people that I probably wasn't the greatest influence on either, and, and hopefully now I'm a much better influence than I was at different points in my life. Uh, the poet Henry David Thoreau said, the most I can do for my friend is simply be a friend. And that's a pretty true statement. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about friends, uh, being a good friend. One of the most beautiful ideas of friendship is the fact that what Christ did for us makes us friends of God. You can't have a better friend than God as your friend, um, especially when you consider the fact that outside of Christ, we're actually his enemies. When we're outside of Christ, we are enemies of God, and because of what Jesus did, we have been made Friends, But we're going to talk about our human friendships and our human relationships and how to make an impact, how to make our mark on the people that we interact with in our daily lives. And there are different levels of friendships, uh, especially in a, a world that's kind of dominated by social media. I didn't bother to look, uh, but if you go on Facebook, I think I have 600 friends on Facebook. Now, interestingly enough, I know the majority of those people in real life. A lot of them are family members. A lot of them are friends that I made through Bible college at different jobs. I went through a few years ago. At one point, I had 2,000 friends on Facebook, and I was sitting there looking through them like, I don't know who these people are. They're obviously not friends. So out of the 500 or some friends I have on Facebook, I can honestly say that the majority of them I know in real life, but they're not necessarily close friends. Some of them are just acquaintances. Some of them are people that we cross paths at Bible college or the other schools that I attended. Some of them are people that I used to work with. I got to thinking about some of my oldest friends. Some of my oldest friends, now I can honestly say that I'm as close to them as I am to my own brother or my own sister, partially because I'm the same age. Uh, we spent so much time together. It's not that I don't have a good relationship with my brother or sister, but my sister's 12 years younger than I am. We're really, really close. But my oldest friend in the world is a guy named Jamie. We actually named our daughter after this guy. And we've been friends so long. His mother and my mother were best friends in high school, so we jokingly say we were best friends in the womb. I've known this guy my entire life. I've got a real good friend named Paul who now lives in Georgia. We became good friends in sixth grade, which you're 11 years old in sixth grade. We went to school for one year. I moved to a different school, and then the next year he moved to a different state. And we lost touch over the years, but in our early 20s we reconnected, and this was before social media, so we actually had to go look a phone number up and call somebody. And we reconnected, and we're still really good friends. In fact, a few years ago, Robin and I and the kids, we went back down to Mississippi to see some of our friends down there, and we actually drove through Georgia and stopped and met Paul and his family. And Paul and I still stay in touch. We're still very, very good friends. I think about my buddy Phil, who lives over in Wilson. We're such good friends that Robin calls him my other wife. We, we're really, really tight. We're really, really good. He's my buddy. 
Uh, he's the friend I think of when we look at our passage here in Ecclesiastes about having a friend that close. Phil is one of those guys that I'm just that close with. I've been fortunate to start meeting with some of the local ministers over at the Bible College. President Griffin has brought us together. And in that group, I've made some really good friends, minister friends that we hold one another accountable. And some of those gentlemen are already making profound impacts on me. Just recently, Robin and I lost very good friends of ours, Mickey and Joyce Witcher, and I've shared with you all how deeply those two individuals affected us. They made a personal impact. They made a mark in our lives. To this day, I still feel it. We just had a funeral service with Trish Griffin not too long ago, and look at all of the people that she influenced. I mentioned last week in our sermon about family that even though it may not seem like it, especially when you're a parent of a teenager, your family has the biggest influence on you as a child. Once you start to get into teen years, you start to have these other influences from the outside. But with little kids, the parent is the most influential person in their life. But like I said, once they get into middle school, they used to call it junior high, but middle school and high school, you start to get into that teenage years and you start to kind of cut ties with your family. That's when a lot of kids get their driver's license. They get their first jobs. And they start to interact with all these people outside of their home. And all of these influences come in. And once again, there are good influences and there are bad influences. I mentioned my buddy Paul. Paul had a lasting influence on my life when we were just 11 years old. We would get together and we would play with our little Star Wars figures and our Hot Wheel cars. But Paul had an older sister who listened to a lot of music. And when Paul would come over to our house, he would steal his sister's 8-track tapes. And fortunately, everybody in here is old enough, you know what an 8-track tape is. But he would take these 8-track tapes and there was this band called ELO. They were real big in the 70s and the 80s. And Paul would bring those over and it was the first time I'd really listened to music that wasn't church stuff. And it was amazing. So he influenced my taste in music and movies and the things that we played with. And it helped mold me to who I am today, even though we were just little kids. I can remember the first time that I ever tried alcohol. And it wasn't at home. My parents did not drink. They did not smoke. Even my grandparent, my granddad only had a beer every now and then when he was out grilling. He might have one or two beers. So I didn't learn that behavior at home. But I can remember going on a class trip when I was in ninth grade and I was trying to do the math. Ninth grade, that's like 13, 14 years old. And our class went to Washington, D.C. And for a lot of us kids from rural Nash County, it was the first time we'd ever been anywhere away from our parents. It was the first time a lot of us had ever spent the night in a hotel other than with our parents. And I can remember being in Washington, D.C., and there were rumors that such and such had something in this room, and if everybody come to this room at this time, it was going to be amazing. And I remember very little about the event. I remember that whatever it was we passed around and drank was nasty. It didn't taste good. I can remember standing there going, I'm, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be a part of this. Like I said, I was raised going to church my whole life. I didn't see alcohol and that kind of stuff at home. But you know why I was there? Because my friends were standing right there and I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't want to be the one left out. And even though I knew that it was wrong, and I knew that it was something I wasn't supposed to be doing, I let my friends influence me into doing something that I knew was wrong. And perhaps we all have stories and recollections of things like that that happened in our youth. 
A school teacher once asked a class to define what a friend was. And I would love to know how old these kids were because these answers are pretty sophisticated and smart. But here are just some of the answers that this teacher was given. She said, describe friendship using elaborate descriptions. And just listen to some of these. A pair of open arms in a world of armless people. That's a pretty good definition of a friend. That's a pretty sophisticated kid right there. A beautiful orchard in a dusty desert. A warm bedroll on a cold night. A mug of hot chocolate on a damp, cloudy day. I would change it to coffee, but I understand the sentiment. And then I like this one. This is my favorite. A hot bath after you walk 20 miles on a dusty road. Now those are good friends. And we can all relate to that. And we probably all can think of people in our lives that are good friends, that are comforting. People that we know that when things are going bad, we can turn to them and we can share our deepest, darkest secrets. We can't overvalue our friends, especially the good ones, especially the ones that we have these close relationships with. And the Bible says that this is important. We need to have friends in our life. It doesn't mean our family's not important. They are our original friends, our brothers and sisters growing up. They're your original friends. But as you get older, especially as we get into adulthood and our families go in different directions, my brother's in Hawaii, my sister's in North Dakota. I have to use Facebook to talk to them, but I have a lot of friends in real life. And they mean a lot to me. And I turn to them when things are difficult. I've talked to a lot of my good buddies, especially Phil, a lot over the last year or so. It's just been a year since Robin and Jamie moved down to North Carolina and I stayed up in Pennsylvania with Christopher. Now I talk to Robin a whole lot because she's my best friend and I'm not ashamed to say that. But I talked a lot to my buddy Phil. I talked a lot to a good buddy of mine named Steve and just shared the things that I was going through. And I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for good friends that I have that are ministers. And King Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, remember he's looking back on his life, thinking about all the things he's experienced. It can be a pretty depressing book when you go through it, when you think this guy had everything. And as he looks back on his life, he realizes he's made some mistakes. He realizes some things just aren't important. All that money and all that wealth wasn't important. But look what he says here in Ecclesiastes 4. And we're going to start in verse 9. He's just finished talking about the uselessness of wealth. And how futile it is to just chase after money and chase after things. But look at verse 9. He says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. And how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Think about it. I'm not going to ask you to share. But think about it. Are there people that you know you can go to, that you can count on? Are there people in your life that you know they've got your back? They will stand with you through thick and thin. King Solomon is basically summing up the, the concept that we understand. You guys that were in the military, you understand this. There is strength in numbers. That is one of the reasons being part of the congregation, being part of the church is so important. 
because that's a built-in body of friends. We have one purpose. We are united in Christ. And we have strength in numbers. It's always better to have somebody to go along with you. Now, I'm an introvert. I like to be alone a lot. I like to have my space. A lot of people assume that means I don't like people. I don't like being around folks, but that's not true. I just need to get ready for it. If i got to be around a bunch of people, I need to get ready for it. And when the event is over, I need them to get away and let me kind of unwind. But I, the loneliest I have been in my life was over the eight or nine months up in Pennsylvania. Because even though Chris was there, he had his friends and he was out doing his stuff. And I was sitting there all by myself, me and my dog. And I love my dog. My dog loves me. He keeps me company, but he's not a person. There's only so much he could do. And I can honestly say it was the loneliest I have ever been in my life, being separated from my wife and my family. And I was thankful before all this mess started this year. I was thankful to be in church every Sunday and Wednesday because there were people, my friends, people that were praying for me, people that were helping me, people that were supporting me. I can definitely say that even as an introvert, even as a person who would identify as a loner, it's better off to have people around you. Especially people that are like-minded, people that are helpful. Now we also know from Scripture that bad company corrupts good character. So it's not just any group you need to be a part of. It's not just any group of people you need to surround yourselves with. It needs to be people that you share a certain mindset you share a faith with. It's so much easier to get through life and get through some of the burdens and things that we have to get through when we have someone with us. And Solomon says it right there, two are better than one because they can help one another. I can remember doing team building exercises when I worked at Habitat for Humanity. And they would come in and they would get you to do these, they, they seem like ridiculous exercises. But what I learned as we failed a couple of them is they were trying to build trust, trying to build camaraderie, trying to help you see that there are some things you cannot do by yourself. The camp that we volunteered for up in Pennsylvania, Sylvan Hills had these low ropes courses. And most of them are exercises in balance and things like that. And when you take a bunch of third and fourth graders and try to teach them, you have to do it together. There's always one little kid, that one little alpha male kid that says, I know how to do this. And he thinks he can do it all by himself. I was that kid a lot in my life. And it takes forever to kind of get that kid to understand, no, it's all of you. You can't do this by yourself. I think when we look at Scripture, Scripture tells us as Christians, we cannot do this by ourselves. We have to have people alongside of us. Verse 10 says, when one of you falls down, what happens? The other one's right there to reach up, to pick you up, to give you a hand and help you. And it says, if you fall by yourself, you're in trouble. It's like those old commercials with the medical alert. I've fallen and I can't get up. It's good to have somebody there with you when you fall to help you get up. I like the one verse 11. It's cold and you got two people, you stay warm. In our case with, with Robin and myself, we have three because the dog climbs in there with us and we really can stay warm. Whereas you're in there shivering by yourself. 
In verse 12 is military terms. If you're standing by yourself and you get attacked and defeated, you're left to fend for yourself. It's good to have people that have your back that are watching out for you. Two can stand back to back and fight, but what does it say? Three is even better because you can fight it off on all sides. And then he uses that famous saying, a cord with three bands is better and stronger than one. Our friendships are important. We, we don't need to undervalue our good friends, especially those that are Christians. But at the same time, we have to be really, really careful. I shared a couple of instances from my own life where I had friends that influenced me in music and things. And those are good things. They're not super important. But I also shared instances where I had friends that influenced me to do things that I should not have done. And unfortunately, when I was younger, I wasn't always a good influence. I can think of situations where I influenced people to do things that they should not have done. And it was because I wanted to fit in. I wanted to belong. I think that's part of our human nature. I think that's one of the reasons this situation with the pandemic has been so difficult on so many people. Because we're isolated. We're told we can't get together. We can't come together and help one another. And there are people suffering alone. We've seen a spike in mental illness and depression and suicide because we were not created to be by ourselves. Even in the garden, God had created this perfect world. And there's Adam with all these animals and everything is good. And he looked at Adam and saw Adam was by himself. And what did God say? That's not good. We weren't designed to be alone. There is strength in numbers. And we need to be positive influences. When we have positive influences in our life, we need to cling to them and love them and respect them. Jesus himself had a really close group of men that he spent time with. He had those 12 men. But as you read through the Gospels, you realize that that 12 whittled down to three. Peter, James, and John were his inner circle. Those three guys went with Jesus where nobody else went. They were up on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured and Moses and Elijah were there. Just those three guys. They were his closest friends on earth while he was in human form. And if you really read into it, John, the writer of the Gospel of John, was the one Jesus loved. They had a special bond. They were close. They were tight. I think about the instance in the night that Jesus was in the garden praying. He knew what was about to happen and what did he ask? He asked his friends to come with him and to stay with him and to pray with him. This is God in the flesh. And he's like, guys, I need you. I need your help here. And like so many times here on earth, they let him down. They weren't there when he really needed them. Jesus himself understood the value of close friendships and understood that we don't need to be alone. I want to share one more guy with you. Take, take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 9. I like to speculate. I've got a pretty good imagination. I've got a list of people that I want to meet when I get to heaven. Maybe you do. There are a lot of folks I want to meet. I want to meet Enoch. He's the first one I want to meet because... It says he walked with God and he was no more. I want to know what that was like. But there's a guy we read about in Acts chapter 9. A guy named Barnabas. Y'all know Barnabas' story, right? I want to meet Barnabas. 
His name is actually not Barnabas. His name is actually Joseph. If you read in Acts 4, his name is Joseph. They called him Barnabas because that name means son of encouragement. That was his nickname. His name was Joseph, but everybody called him Barnabas because they knew his character. They knew that he had their back. They knew he was going to encourage them and make a positive influence. And I want us to look just very briefly here in a couple of verses at the influence that he had. In Acts chapter 9, we've got the story of Saul of Tarsus and how he met Jesus on the road and Jesus blinded him. said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then Jesus revealed that it was Jesus. And then Saul goes and he's baptized and he's on fire for Jesus. But Saul, the guy who had been going around arresting Christians and throwing them in prison and having them killed, he's got to go meet all these people that he had been trying to destroy. I don't know about you, but if I had been one of those early believers and they said, hey, Saul of Tarsus is coming to prayer meeting, I don't know that I would really want to see him. The guy who had thrown my friends in prison, the guy who had stood there when they killed Stephen and give his approval, I don't know that I would want to see that guy. Look at Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 26. Saul's going back to Jerusalem because people are trying to kill him. They realize he's been changed. And now people are trying to kill him. The shoe's on the other foot. And in verse 26, it says, When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Well, that makes sense to me. Do you believe this guy? Maybe he's just pretending. Maybe he's trying to sneak in. Do you believe him? It says, They did not believe he was a disciple. Oh, look at verse 27. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Barnabas, however took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that the Lord had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas stood up for Saul when nobody wanted to hear it. When everybody doubted, when everybody was ready to kick this guy to the curb and say, I don't trust him. How can we believe him? We know who he was. We know what he's done. And they're all sitting there and nobody's willing to step forward. Nobody's willing to say anything. I don't know about you, but I'm, I think, I'm thankful that there was a Barnabas there for Saul. Now God was going to do what God was going to do. But how much more difficult would it have been for Saul, who would later go by Paul? How difficult would it have been for him to achieve God's purpose and for him to achieve God's mission if Barnabas hadn't have been brave enough and stood up and says, I'll vouch for him. I'll stand with him. I got your back. Do you have somebody in your life that you know has got your back? Are there people in your life that they know that without a shadow of a doubt that you have their back? Now God's going to achieve his purposes and God's going to achieve his plans no matter what. But somebody is depending on you just like you're depending on someone else. We have a choice. We have a choice to either be a positive influence or a negative influence. There are people counting on us. There are people depending on us. There are people that we count on and people that we depend on. And we need to be good friends. I want to close and share a story. And I'm going to kind of whittle it down because it's a pretty long story. 
But there was this teacher that was teaching in the 60s, and she had this group of kids. They would probably be in what we call middle school, maybe early high school. And she wanted to prove a point, so she handed out paper to every student, and it had the name of all of their classmates, and said, I want you to write down one good thing about every one of your classmates. And they all did it, and they turned it in, and she collected them, and then she gave each student a piece of paper with all the positive things and all the good things that their classmates had said about them and gave it to them, and everybody was excited, and wow, I can't believe so-and-so thought that. And she put it out of her mind. She thought that was a good assignment. It taught them a lesson, and she never thought it would matter. And then a few years later, one of her students named Mark was killed in Vietnam, and she went to the funeral. And as she was at the funeral, she watched all these former students and all of Mark's family go by. And she went by and she paid her respects. And some of the students there recognized her. Hey, you, you were our teacher back in school, weren't you? She's like, yeah. She's like, well, come over. Mark's parents would love to meet you. Come over after and, and sit down with us as we remember Mark. So she went and she sat there and she listened to Mark's friends and his family share all these things. And then one of the students introduced her said, oh, by the way, this was our teacher back in whatever grade it was. And Mark's dad stood up and he had tears in his eyes. And he's like, I'm so glad you're here. I want to share something with you. And he took out of his coat pocket a piece of paper that was yellowed and torn at the ends and folded over. And she unfolded it and said, this is the list you gave Mark that day in class. He took it with him everywhere he went because it showed him that he had value and he had people and friends on his side. And she, he said, in fact, it was in his pocket the day he died. And I want to thank you for being his friend. And as the service went on, a lot of other students came and said, I still have my list too. It's in my desk here. It's there. And this woman who just thought she was doing an exercise realized that we make an impact on people, whether we realize it or not. And we can choose to make a positive influence and a negative influence. King Solomon says it's better to have friends than to go it alone. There's strength in numbers. I'm thankful that Paul had Barnabas. I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for Robin and my buddy Phil. And I'm thankful for all of you. I want to challenge you as we close tonight. And this is just for you. Think about somebody that's got your back. Tell them thank you. Tell them you appreciate it. Tell them it means a lot. Think about the person that you've got their back. Let them know, hey, I've got your back. I'm here for you. And remember, the reason we can do this is because of Jesus. Jesus died for us and God calls us friend. And God has our back. Don't ever forget it. Let's pray.